Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We've got Mike Breen coming up, the longtime lead national voice of the NBA on ABC and ESPN, also the Knicks broadcaster on MSG. Locally in New York, and plenty of hoops topics, but you know Adam and I aren't going to lead with hoops. Adam, on March 24th, I don't even know what day today is, but either way, it was March 24th at 5.58 p.m., and the tweet was, Taco Fall is Tall, and it was from <laughs> Seth Davis. <laughs> and, you know, I'm watching, a, I'm watching uh, so I guess this was, uh, you know, it was over the weekend, I'm watching the Duke game, and... Seth Davis tweets, Taco Fall is tall. Yeah, dude, I, and it's just, there's so, so many tweets just drive me nuts. Like, what's the point? Like, what's the value add in any of this? And if it's just like, oh, well, then this is who I am, well, then that makes me think less of you. So that's what's driving me nuts today. It, Noah, do you think that he was going for it just because of the rhyme scheme? Like, did he all of a sudden occur to him that fall and tall know. matched? I don't know. And, and I like Seth, too. But... Things like this make, make you me like question. him less. Make me yeah. question. No, no, make you like him less. Just go ahead and say it. Be strong off some the of top. The, some, some of these tweets from, like, I still don't understand why anybody would, like, in NBA circles, like, if you're a, you know, like, the Wizards beat writer, like, why would you retweet something from Woj about the Wizards? Like, you know all the people follow Woj anyway, right? Like unless yeah. you're gonna add, unless you're gonna add something, I, I, there are things just about Twitter that I, I know I might be late to the game on here that have just been driving me up a wall recently. Well, if you gave up your your Twitter um, password and username to the to oh, the yeah. Pure Hoops team, I'm right, sure right, they could right, they, they could take, take care of all your your yeah, Twitter they responsibilities. Could. They could. That's not gonna happen, but they okay. but they could. But I have been enjoying watching games more, not being on Twitter. Hmm. Interesting approach. I, I'm obsessed with Twitter, and it's it's certainly a problem for me. But I, you're a value add. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I, I agree with that too. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. But Noah, I, I want to tell you what bothers me. I my daughter um, had had was on the swim team at one point, and my other daughter is still on the swim team. But my daughter Avery is now doing track, and track is worse than swimming from from a parental perspective. I showed up 3 o'clock in the afternoon to drop these kids off at the meet. The meet didn't end till 7.15. Okay? What? So we're talking four hours and 15 minutes from start to finish. But here's the thing. She's my really daughter, slow, huh? Well, <laughs> it took her a while to get around the track. <laughs> hey. here's, here's, here's the worst part about it, though. My daughter joined the track team so she could do sprinting or the 400 in order to keep herself in shape before soccer because she was waiting for her spring league to start in soccer. And as soon as she started, the, the track coach decided she'd be good as a thrower. So I s missed the first hour of track. I dropped her off. By the time I get back, 
I see her throw one shot put. So I see her throw a rock about two and a half feet one time. And then she couldn't leave, Noah. And I had to give other kids a ride home. So I just sat there for another three hours as, like, a random mom came up and wanted to talk to me about parental philosophy at, for three hours. And I'm just stuck. Meanwhile, my daughter is socializing in the middle of this, this track, just hanging out with her friends. It drove me insane. Track is the worst. Do not let your daughter grow up to be a track person, please. I thought, I thought you were going to tell me that the, that the, the mom wanted to talk to you about Washington State softball or something. <laughs> like, oh, Adam Stanko, Pac-12 Network. Uh, what do you know about uh, what do you know about the Cougars this year? <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll talk hoops in a moment. But first, the newest member of our Pure Hoops media family, it's Monica McNutt. Hey, Pure Hoops fans, I'm Monica McNutt, and I'm pumped to announce my podcast rolling out April 11th, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. We're going to do it every Thursday. Hopefully, we'll have some conversations with your favorite hoopers. We'll get to their journey in the game, what makes it special, why they love the game, all of that good stuff. So please check it out. It's Buckets, Boards, and Blocks rolling out on April 11th every Thursday. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. All right, so Noah, explain this to me. The Celtics don't even have a switch to flip in the first place. So that's that's the thing. All I've been hearing about from the Celtics and even some folks that are associated with the Celtics say, well, you know, you get to the playoffs, you flip the switch. Well, well, what switch is that? Because I haven't, this isn't a team that has gotten to the NBA Finals. Only Kyrie has. I mean, if you have a track record of doing so, like the Golden State Warriors, but the Golden State Warriors still in first place, but if, say, they had lost four in a row. All right, there's no panic. But the Boston Celtics, everything was supposed to be fixed on, or apparently it was on that plane ride, and now it's awful again. And maybe even worse than it was before. There is no there is no switch here. So you can talk about turning it on, but if you go to the bathroom and you go to flip the switch on and there's no lights in the light bulb, then or there's no light bulbs in the light, then you're not turning on anything. So the Celtics, I think, are in real trouble and if they're just going to sit guys and now take the fifth spot or maybe even fall into the sixth spot, of which I can't imagine happening, but if they fall into the fifth, if they're, they sit in that fifth spot, I think they're in for a seven-game series against the Pacers. Yeah, and Noah, they're, they're going to basically, to use your analogy, be going to the bathroom in the dark, right? I mean, that's, that's ultimately what's going to happen here. I mean, and, and for dangerous. context— for context for people, it depends on who you are. depends on your aim. I, They've lost four in a row. That's why you got to sit. Do you sit at night? I, I always, like, even if I have to pee, I just, I just sit down at night. When I don't, I don't put on the light, I sit down. You know what? Sometimes I chance it. Yeah, not worth it. Sometimes I chance it. Risk, risk reward here, Adam. Risk reward. Yeah, well, <laughs> I blame the fact that there's uh, something on the floor on my two-year-old. That's that's just how I handle uh, it. Oh my god. Um no Poor Noah, us. but here's here's the other thing about about the Celtics though. It's going to have to start on the defensive end though if we're talking about fixing their problems. They you know, lost four in a row, five of their last seven, and in those seven games every opponent has scored at least 
114 points against them. So Celtics' problems start on the defensive end. Do they have an identity? That's ultimately uh, the real question here. Good call with the identity. And I remember Paul George in his final season in Indiana going into the playoffs saying, like, you know, we don't know what our identity is. I remember he said it to Jalen Rose on the, uh, like, an ESPN halftime show. And we don't have an identity. In order to, you know, to, to lock in defensively, you have to have that defensive identity, and they just haven't had it this year. I think it's, I think it's a great point. Guys, explain this to me. Adam, explain this to me. Jason Kidd should be coaching in the NBA next season. Well, of course, Noah, you're referring to, to him coaching the, the Lakers is the presumption. And his quote, uh, I think it was on the jump, said, when you look at the Lakers on the whole, it's franchise, one of the best in the world, not just in the NBA, but in the world. So if you ever have the opportunity to wear the purple and gold, you can't turn that down as a coach or a player because they're all about championships. I, I'll say this on the, the Jason Kidd coaching the Lakers point. I mean, first of all, it's, it's interesting that we're already talking about the next head coach when they have one, and it's not an interim coach in, in Luke Walton. I will say this. LeBron, when he's been happiest, and if, if you're Magic and you're uh, Palenka and, and you've said this is what we want is our future, is a happy LeBron, right? It, Eric Spolster was the coach in Miami, and that was a situation in which LeBron – deferred to Dwayne Wade and had gone to Miami and was in deferential mode, right? So he didn't pick that coach, but he chose to play for him. And uh, Tyron Lue, uh, when, when you know they got rid of David Blatt, and that's who LeBron wanted as the head coach. He has a relationship with Jason Kidd. They're, they're sort of pass-first guards, uh, you know, in a way. They, 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 they approach the game in a similar fashion. And uh, this was a coach. I mean, people knock him, but it was up 2-1. Um, you know, on the Raptors at one point and then ended up being fired from, from the Bucks. But, but Noah, I think that um, I think we're going to see Jason Kidd coaching the Lakers next season. He's not going to go to Cal. I think he's going to be at the Lakers. I think it's all set up to, to be there. Yikes. So if, I mean, there's, uh, there's the question of, well, okay, well, is Jason Kidd just the answer? Because if you just replace Luke Walton with Jason Kidd and LeBron, and I say LeBron, but the Lakers don't get any of the top-notch free agents, then what? Then, then what Then what have you done? Now you're asking Jason Kidd to be put in this situation where, okay, turn around Lonzo's career and, make, and turn Brandon Ingram into an all-star and make sure Kyle Kuzma is happy with his shots also. And then you've got to retool the roster with not the A-plus or even the A free agents. So that's a that's a tough spot to put anybody in, and I don't. I mean, Jason Kidd with Milwaukee. I mean, look, Milwaukee last year versus this year. I mean, last year they didn't play any defense, none, and he, he had that that revolutionary. You're gonna we're gonna blitz everything on a pick and roll, and then mm-hmm. teams figured that out, and then all of a sudden the league caught up to it, and then the defense last year was horrendous. So and look, I'm not I'm not convinced that if they'd gotten Brook Lopez last year that. Jason Kidd would have said, yeah, Brooke, here, go shoot five threes a game. Either. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. I, I yeah. just think I, I think that if we're strictly talking about LeBron's happiness, and, and that's sort of what the Lakers have done, just sort of said, okay, well, let's let LeBron run this thing. I mean, the roster was sort of constructed that way to have cap flexibility. And I'm thinking free agency-wise, I'm with you. From a coaching perspective, I don't know that I believe in it, but I think for LeBron's happiness' sake – I think it, it comes down to having a, a guy that LeBron can just sort of, I don't know, respect 
I think is it's a weird, touchy word, but I think that's the the word I think that we could go with there. Um, no, speaking of rosters, explain this to me. The Hawks can be a playoff team next year. Yeah, they can. Especially looking at the bottom part of the Eastern Conference, and then who knows what happens with teams and personnel at the top with Trey Young, John Collins, and Kevin Herter as your. What do you want to call that? You want to call that a big three, yes. and and veterans like Vince and Kent Bazemore, and you still have Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembry. You have they've developed a culture this year despite a losing season. But I didn't think this team was going to win more than twenty games this year to begin with, or maybe even more than eighteen games to begin with. And then next year, or in the draft, so right now they'd have their pick at five and they'd have Dallas's pick at, at six because that Dallas pick is top five protected from the from the Luka trade. And they'll have a max slot open. And I think guys like playing for Lloyd Pierce. And although players in the past have said, I like going to Atlanta, but if I want to save my marriage, I'm not going to sign <laughs> with Atlanta. And maybe maybe you get a single guy who will sign with the Atlanta Hawks. I, I mean, Trey Young is enough to convince people to, to go there, I think, um, as well as the entertainment. But Trey Young, I mean, I love Trey Young so much. No, I, and, and John Collins, I saw him work out pre-draft and uh, love his, his work ethic. He's expanded his game. He, he felt limited by what he was doing at Wake Forest under Danny Manning. So you have those two guys. And think about this, Noah. You mentioned some of the names, but I just want to say, Trey Young, 20 years old, on his rookie contract next season. John Collins, 21, on his rookie contract. Torian Prince, 25, on his rookie contract. Uh, those are the top three scorers on the team. Then you get to Amari Spellman, 21, on his rookie contract. Of course, I love Kevin Herter, too, out of Maryland. You talk about all those guys, that youth, there's a bright, bright future there. I'm, I'm excited by what they're going to be able to do. Travis Schlenk has done a really nice job coming over from the Warriors. He wanted to build sort of Warriors light go young through the draft, get shooters, get guys who could really play and understand the game. And I think he's I think he's done that. Yeah, and then hopefully have those guys take a little bit less money to stick with the team when, you know, they're succeeding on the rookie contracts. Let's close with this. Explain this to me. Since you're the draft guy and you've been doing this since you were like 4 years old, give me the guys that should be rising up draft boards. I'm going to give you two of them. So Kobe White, who already is starting to, but for the last month, he, he, people thought he was late first rounder. He's North Carolina's point guard, 6'5". You see him with the crazy hair. Uh, so quick off the dribble. He's got a little bit of a high dribble, but NBA people aren't going to be that worried about it. Can really shoot from the outside. Just has this sort of charisma on the court. He plays with sort of a joy, and the way he passes the ball and, and scores is just awesome. He was late first round, talked about for a while. He's starting to find his way into the lottery. I think he's going to be like a top six pick when it's all said and done. To get a 6'5 point guard who can really score in today's NBA, step back, shoot it, finds people, uh, competes defensively, uh, you can't beat that combination. I think he's going to be a, a valuable, valuable player in the league. And then the other guy, is a Pac-12 guy, Matisse Thibel. He's also 6'5", but he plays. he's going to play on the wing and, and be a 3 and D guy. But one of the best defensive players to come out of college basketball in the last decade, if not the best. He plays on the top of Mike Hopkins' zone, disrupts everything. Noah, over three steals and two blocks a game. No one in the last 20 years mm -hmm. has done that. And he does it off the top of his zone. I mean, this guy gets chased down blocks 
from the top of the zone. I mean, two blocks a game playing the top of the zone. And ma- meanwhile, Pac-12's all-time steals leader broke Gary Payton's record. So he's, he should be a mid-first rounder because he is going to be a game changer on the defensive end. Mm. Somebody like a, a Robertson, but a better defensive player, mm. a guy that will lock people down at the next level. So right, I, ha- I, haven't, I, haven't looked at, I haven't looked at mock drafts yet, but give me 20 seconds on where DeAndre Hunter should be at from UVA. I think he's going to be a lottery pick. One of the best defensive players in the country defends multiple positions. Unreal in terms of his versatility defensively. And, and, he, and, and he's a good shooter, right? And he can really he can shoot it, and he's smart. I mean, those guys, and think about by the way the success that Tony Bennett's guys, Clay Thompson, um, Malcolm Brogdon, Joe Harris. Yeah. Think about because those guys understand how to play the game. He enables them to do. It's sort of like getting great quarterback coaching. That's what Tony Bennett does for for prospects at the at the college level. All right, let's get to Mike Breen. That was dope. We're joined now by the lead voice of the NBA on ABC and ESPN, also the voice of the New York Knicks. He has been the television play-by-play announcer for the last 13 NBA Finals. He's Mike Breen. Mike, when was the last time that you had real butterflies before a broadcast? Yeah, you, you know what? You'd be surprised how often you do. I, you know what? I get them the most every year right before game one of the finals. Huh. Um, there's just, you know, it, it's adrenaline, it's butterflies, but I still get them. And I'd be worried if I didn't get them because, I, you know, I, I think it's it shows a good sign of, all right, you're fired up, you have the adrenaline going. Um, I, I, I think I'd get, uh, I'd get high anxiety if I didn't have the butterflies. So, uh, I would say last year before game one of the finals, are, are the butterflies different? Do they feel different now as opposed to earlier in your career? Oh, <laughs> there's no question. I mean, that was the butterflies back earlier in the career was all out fear. Um, especially I, I remember, I think the most nervous I ever was on the air prior to maybe the first time you're ever on was the first, um, game, one of the NBA finals, the first year I did it, uh, for ABC with, uh, with UB Brown, that was the Dallas Miami series. And I was so nervous that, um, after the first quarter or not the first quarter, the first commercial break, UB who I've known for so long and, and, um, you know, obviously is, is one of the legends. Uh, he grabs me during the timeout, and he he could tell how nervous I was. And he just said to me, "He's like, hey kid, just just relax and do what you always do. You're gonna be fine." Because he knew I was in in severe panic mode. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, so you talk about the nervousness. You know, I want to take you way back from the start of your career, Sports Nightly, Sports Channel America. Starting out, uh, our producer Bruce Bernstein said that we had to ask you about the conditions at the Hamilton House. So if you could just <laughs> fill us in on on what the early Mike Breen career looked like at that time. Well, um, Hamilton House, for as as disastrous it was, you got you gained so much confidence from working there because you felt if you could um, do a show properly at Hamilton House, you could do a show anywhere in the world. Um, but it was actually, it, it was, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about early in your careers, you, you're, um, these type of stories of, you know, difficult conditions, 
um, don't have a lot of help. All these stories are what, what makes it all worthwhile. It makes it so much fun. The thing with Hamilton House and Sports Channel is you had everybody was helping each other. It was the greatest team effort of all time. But half of the team, uh, and this was a professional operation that was going across the country, half of the team were students at Hofstra University. They were basically paid interns. Um, but somehow you got it done. And, um, you know, again, those horror stories and the war stories from, from early in the career are, are the things you look back on fondly. I do remember uh, Sports Channel America had uh, the rights to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I wasn't a big hockey fan. I liked the Rangers. But uh, Lee Zeidman was the lead anchor, and he loved hockey, and he was great, and he was a great host, and he's up there with Scotty Bowman. I mean, Scotty Bowman. And they're doing all this stuff, and and Lee had to call in sick one day, and I had to fill in for him. And I'm 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 hosting the NHL playoffs with Scotty Bowman, and I don't know a thing about hockey, but Scotty was so great, and the producers were so great, you get through it. But again, these are just these are just war stories that uh, you look back and laughter, but you were you were pretty frightened back in the day. That's why they call you one of the nicest men in the industry, because you're already giving credit to the producers. So we uh, we love that for sure. I know, I know it doesn't always give credit to to his stop producers, it. But I'm just saying, I'm just <laughs> pointing it out. Um, but uh, Mike, you go from from that situation, you end up going to the Don Imus show, and from there, there was I know a lot of shtick going on, and and uh, how did you go from? being sort of the comedic voice and how much did that help you as you transitioned into the, to the play-by-play life that uh, we know you as now? Well, Adam, the, the IMA show was uh, is as much fun as I've ever had in the business. It's just, you know, you work with such talented people, but it wasn't easy at first. I, I listened to, to IMAs growing up as a kid. I'm from Yonkers, New York. And, you know, I listened every day for the longest time. And then to finally work on the show was like a dream come true. I will tell you a story the way I got on the show. Don Cricky was a sportscaster, and Cricky would miss during the football season. Don Cricky, one of the great NFL announcers of all time, he would have, he would miss every Friday and Monday, and he, I just wouldn't have a sportscaster. And I was the producer on the sports talk show at night, so I went to the program director and I said, hey, nobody's doing sports on Monday and Friday when Cricky's out. Can I fill in? So the program director says, sure. So he brings me back to Imus's office. This is about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and Imus was still drinking heavily back in those days. So we go back in his office, and he's got his head down between his legs, and he's three sheets to the wind. And the program director says, hey, uh, hey Don, this, this young kid, he wants to fill in for Cricky tomorrow. What do you say we give him a chance? And Imus doesn't even look up. He says, that's fine. Now get the F out of my office. <laughs> so I walk out of the office, and I'm the happiest guy in the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do sports on the IMA show the next day. So I go in the next morning. I, I was in you know, two hours early. I have my first sports cast all prepared. I go in, I sit down next to IMA's, and he's looking at me while he's talking to his newsman, Charles McCord, and I can tell he has no idea who I am. <laughs> so he shuts off his mic, and he tells McCord to keep keep reading the news and he leans over to me off mic now and he says to me who the f are you he had no clue who i was so when i start to explain to him um who i am he turns on his microphone and he goes hey charles this kid says he's filling in for cricky have you ever seen him and that's how my imus uh career started and it was one of the great things about it is again if you could ad lib and and deal with with the people on that show uh, it gave you great confidence that you could do it anywhere, and it was a big confidence builder. But it was hard for me to go from trying to be a, a um, 
incredible sportscaster to a wisecracking guy who did more jokes than actual scores. Uh, but again, not to, to, to go overboard on this, but with all the help of the people on the show, um, it turned out to be just a great fun. I actually did it for about 14 years. Do you, do you remember what was in that very first sportscast? Uh, that's a great question. No, I, I don't. I wish I did. Um, I'm sure whatever it was, it, uh, my attempt to, to actually report sports scores was interrupted within the first 30 seconds. That I'm pretty positive about. <laughs> and do do often earlier in your career at, on, on the national stage reflect back on being able to handle IMIS and then the rotating cast of partners that you've had on the air as analysts? Uh, well, first off, I'll disagree with you. I never learned how to handle IMAS. That was never a possibility. Oh, so, okay. uh, I, I learned how to deal with, with all the different things that he threw at you. But no, I, I think that's, you know, that's a good point in that, um, you know, you, you, it made you find out, like it took me a while on the IMAS show to figure out exactly what he wanted from my sports report. And once you get that, then, you know, just the whole chemistry thing really starts to work. And it's the same thing when you when you work with analysts on games. And, and I've had the fortune of working with so many great ones that uh, everybody's different. And it takes a while to try and figure out, okay, what do they like to do? What do they don't like to do on the air? What do you think their strengths are where you can lead them into the right things? You know, for example, there's some analysts – that wants you, if you're going to ask like a really pointed question about an issue, they'd prefer you to ask them during the timeout so they can kind of gather their thoughts a little bit. There are other analysts who will say to you, nah, just whatever you want. You just you just throw it out at me and I'm glad to do it. They actually prefer the spontaneity. Um, so it's it's all a matter of, you know, figuring out who to work with and, and, and trying to get some kind of chemistry. Sometimes it happens right away. Sometimes it, it never really clicks. Uh, so when it does happen right away, you're, you're, you're thankful for those opportunities. What did Bill Walton prefer? <laughs> Bill, here's the, my Bill story. The first time I'm working with him, he says to me, um, now listen, he says, I tend to go on and on and on. So whenever you want me to stop, you just grab my arm. I'm like, okay. Now, again, I'm, I'm intimidated. I'm working with Bill Walton, one of the great players, and, and obviously a, a – um, a well-known sportscaster and a big-time analyst. So we start the game, and he's kind of going on and on. So I grab his arm, but he doesn't stop. <laughs> he, just keeps, he just keeps going on and on. And, he, you know, he kind of winked after it and stuff like that. But it was the same thing. Like, he, it, it, um, it, it just took a little while to get used to him. And, and Steve Jones, uh, God rest his soul, Steve, who passed away about a year and a half ago, I had a chance to work with three of them. And... Uh, he taught me a lot about uh, about working with Walton and uh, working with different analysts. He was he had a great mind, and um, what he used to always do, uh, his best, um, I think his best advice was, make sure you listen to everything your analysts say, especially with Bill, because if Bill says something crazy and you don't counter it or correct it, people are going to think that you believe the same. <laughs> stuff as well. So, you know, you, you just learn the the cool thing, guys, as you know, you know, everybody you work with, you just you learn so much from and and some of the, the basketball minds that I've been able to do games with is uh it's been so much fun to learn about the game and broadcasting from them. If if you were to offer advice for someone 
who was going to replace you on a broadcast with Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy, what advice would you have for them to working with those two guys? Um, oh, let's see. The first advice uh, I would say is, is be prepared. Um, be prepared to just sit back when they get something real fun or something interesting going in terms of a debate back and forth. Just prepare and sit back. And don't worry about uh, don't worry about talking because these guys are they're so good together their chemistry is so off the charts. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, uh, have a thick skin because they're going to make fun of you. And I think that's that's the beauty of working with those guys. Like we all make fun of each other, you know, several times during a broadcast, and and nobody has a thin skin. Um, you know, we all know it's 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 for entertainment. It's all to poke fun and. I, I don't know if I've ever worked with, with people that are, or, are like that where, you know, if Jeff says something on the air that I disagree with or I say something on the air that they disagree with, you know, we go after each other right away and question them and, and ask them, what are you talking about? And it's it's really fun. And I, I think it's really fun for the listener, too. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, I've known both of them for 25 years. And I think the most underrated part of what we do is having that chemistry where there's such a comfort level. And it's hard when you change partners all the time. I mean, you, you have some great ones, but when you've known somebody, you've been friends with somebody from 25 years, you just feel like you could say or do anything uh, with them on the air, and it's not going to be a problem. And and that's what's made it so much fun. I mean, Jeff basically taught me the NBA. When I first started with the Knicks, he was an assistant coach. And Mark was always one of my favorite players, and he has such a great big-picture perspective and he's seen it from both a player and a coach. Um, the amount of stuff I've learned from those two guys is incredible. So the other piece of advice uh, I would say to anybody who's worked with them is is uh, listen as much as you can to what they have to say. Has the has the relationship, Mike, between team broadcasters and coaches changed over the years? Since you said you learned so much from Jeff when he was an assistant coach, I've talked to team broadcasters around the league and who say that they have nothing to do with the coaching staff. Um, you know what? I, I don't, I don't think it's changed that much over the years. I, you know, again, it's every, it's different. For example, I should count how many different head coaches have been with the Knicks since I've been calling Nick games. But when oh, you're the boy. team broadcaster, you tra you travel with them all the time. You know, you're, you're on the team bus, you're on the team plane, you're mm -hmm. in the same hotels and certain coaches, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's human nature. You spend some time with somebody, you have similar likes, obviously like basketball, and you get to be friendly with them, and it's 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 great relationships. Uh, other coaches are a little more uh, close to the vest. They don't reveal as much. They want to keep you know arms distance and and not make it a, a friendship. Um, and it's hard too. You have to balance you have to balance being a friend with a coach that you travel with, but at the same time you still have to be objective about the job they do on the air, and sometimes have to criticize. So. Um, you know, it's all, it's, it's very different from coach to coach, but I don't think it's changed all that much over time. I, I want to get back to, to Jeff and Mark in a moment, but with your Knicks broadcast partner, have you ever gone shopping with Walt Clyde? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I have not. He, um, he has his, you know, as people who watch him know, he, he has a style that is all his own. And if anybody else, uh, wore some of the clothes that he wears, um, they would be mocked, but he pulls it off because he's just, he's always had style. He's always, 
He's always been cool. I know cool is not a word that people use anymore, but Clyde is still cool. And I believe, I think it's Thursday, he turns 74 on Thursday, and he still looks great and he still sounds great, but I have never been shopping with him. Although he has he has changed my uh, fashion picks once in a while. Every once in a while now, I'll, I'll try something that I never would have tried years ago, but he's kind of worn off on me. As As far as the Knicks go, when you first – started there pat riley's the head coach what's something about pat riley that that the general public has no idea about well um he he's probably the most focused person i've ever met in my life when he has something in his mind and he's the type of 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 guy that if if you might not think he notices anything but he notices everything um when I first started, again, super intimidated by Pat Riley, and I would, I would probably do a pregame show with him uh, once every five games, where I'd go back, bring my tape recorder back then, and I'd sit down in his office, and I would say hello, coach. He would say hello. Um, I didn't even think he knew my name, and I would do the interview, and then I would say thank you, coach, and say you're welcome, and I'd go out. And that was the way it was every single time. There was never, ever, ever any social banter. Um, he just he wanted to get the work done. He was focused on the next task, et cetera, et cetera. So the season ends, the rookie year, and I mean, I had, a, I had the greatest time. The team was good. Um, and Riley was very professional, but he wasn't friendly or social. And about a week after the season ends, I got a, I got a letter in the mail, a handwritten letter from him. Uh, thanking me for my professionalism and uh, basketball uh, broadcasting ability and for helping him with his job. It was unbelievable how it went on. And again, I didn't even know he knew my name. Hmm. He sends me this letter, and there are a couple of things in particular that made me – I'm thinking to myself, how did he even even know that? But he recognized things, and he he was – you know, like I said, he was aware of everything that went around, even though you you didn't think he did. Yeah, that's yeah, that's special. That is that's that's really special. Um, I do. Yeah, I still have that letter. Yeah. Next, oh, next yeah. To, next to what? <laughs> oh, it's in a desk somewhere. It'll take me. It'll take me a while to find it, but I still have it. When uh, when you, Jeff, and Mark go out to dinner, who pays for dinner? <laughs> it's a rotating check. Oh. Now, if you ask Jeff, if you ask Jeff and Mark the same question, uh-huh. they'll tell you that I never pay. <laughs> but you can't believe a damn word they say. <laughs> <laughs> so, how about how about the first time you went to dinner? Who who is uh, who who is the one to reach into the pocket first? You know what? I I don't know which one, but both. And it 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 does pain me a little bit to say this, uh, say something nice about them. But they are two of the most generous people I've ever met. I've I've had times where Mark has come in and he's got, Mark's got a great um, uh, taste for ties and he's come in a lot of games and I'll look to him and I'll say, boy, I love that tie. And he'll nod and say, thanks. Next game we do, he gives me, he goes out and buys the same tie and he gives me the tie. They, mm. the, the two of them are so generous. Uh, they're always paying for stuff. They're always doing things like that, that, um, uh, like I said, uh, it, it hurts me to have to, to compliment them this way, but I have to tell the truth. When you, when you when you are sitting around having dinner, are you talking business, NBA, or family, or otherwise? 
you you can't even begin to to list the amount of topics that are discussed. Um, it's it's um, to me in some ways it's more fun than the games, the dinners, the rides to the arena. Um, these guys they've got an opinion about everything. Now Mark is not only you know he's obviously he's a brilliant basketball mind, but he thinks he's a brilliant football, baseball, every other sport mind as well. <laughs> And he has he has an opinion about everything. Jeff also has an opinion about everything, and usually looks at it from a different vantage point. I remember one time we had we had a discussion. They'll probably get mad at me if I if I told the story, but I'll tell it anyway. We had a discussion where we listed ten people, and and they wanted to know all right if this if this person and it was somebody in our lives either professional or social, if this person. Um, died would you go to their funeral if you were on vacation <laughs> i mean these are the kinds of different things they throw out and it's, like you know, at that. first you're looking like oh it's but it's it's hilarious they just pick these topics and they go back and forth and yell back and forth it is like i said the time off the air and the, the car rides and the dinners are uh, or it's just much uh, just as much fun if not more than the games wait well, so, you so can... can you reveal a a shocking <laughs> yes or no I cannot. Well, I kept, uh, of course, everyone, they said I kept saying yes, and they didn't believe me. So I, I was not allowed <laughs> to participate in it after that. Yeah, have you all ever funerals. gone on vacation together? Uh, no, I think uh, I know on their take, by the time the long season ends, they're so sick of seeing me that they would not be interested in me joining them on vacation. I get it. Oh, Mike, what's the, I'm sure you've been asked a hundred times, but I'm going to make it 101. What's the origin of the bang call? It's, it's not a, uh, anything great story. It, it just comes from when I was a student at Fordham, I, um, not only did I, as a student broadcaster, I broadcast a bunch of the games. Um, uh, Michael Kay was, was another one of the broadcasters I was with there yet. And of course the, the, the great Yankee announcer, uh, Bob Papa was the broadcaster there. Charlie Slows, who's been doing um, Major League Baseball for years. Um, so we would all, if we didn't go to the game, if we weren't broadcasting the game for the student radio station, we would still go to the game. You know, so like Fordham played St. Peter's in New Jersey, Fairfield in Connecticut, obviously Manhattan in the Bronx. So you could drive to almost every single game. There were a few games that were, you know, out of town that you would have to fly to. But any game that was in like three or four hours driving distance, we would go as fans if we weren't doing the game. So I went to just about every Fordham game my sophomore year. And uh, when Fordham had a couple of really good outside shooters, and whenever they would hit an outside shot as a fan, you know, I'm all pumped up for my school, I would yell out bang. And I, I, it just became like a tradition for me when, when – when one of the Fordham players would hit it. And then I, I tried this, you know what, maybe I'll use that on the air. And I actually used it on the air for a couple of Fordham radio casts, and I didn't like the way it sounded. I'm like, ah, nah, I don't, I don't think I like that. So I stopped using it, and I didn't start using it again until I started doing um, uh, television play-by-play. And that's actually Sports Channel was the first time. So uh, I tried it at first, didn't like it, and brought it back. And, and then after I started doing a little bit on TV, some people said they liked it and thought it was good. And one of the reasons I left it in is because it's usually in a big moment when the crowd's going crazy. 
And when the crowd's going crazy, you don't want to be screaming a whole lot of words to try and get over the crowd. So it's a good, quick, concise call that gets you in and out when the crowd level is so, so high because the human voice is not made to be, you know, screaming for 15 seconds. I don't have that strong a voice for that. So it turned out to be a really nice, quick, concise call to, to amplify a big moment without talking too much. I I love I love that. I love the the analytical breakdown of of that call and meanwhile it's iconic. I mean nothing screams modern day NBA finals more than than that call and so as fans I you know we thank you that that, that you can give us that. Um Mike you bring up your your Fordham days and I had heard a story that while you and Michael K were there the two of you dreamt about being the Knicks and Yankees voices. How much truth is there to that? But we well, we didn't we didn't dream about it. We we used to talk about it. We'd we'd sit in the school cafeteria and just you know start thinking. And that was his. He says, "All I want to do is to be the Yankee announcer." And I would say, "All I want to do is be the Nick announcer." And then we'd look at each other and say, "You know, these two idiots think that uh, think this is going to come true." And not that you believed it was going to come true. You just hoped. So it's um, you know he's. He's been a great, wonderful friend. He's one of my best friends for the past 40 years. I'm thrilled for him. He's so happy for me. Um, it's it's pretty cool that, that the two of us were talking about that when we were 19 years old, sitting around at a, at a Fordham cafeteria, and it came true. Right. So you said you're just two idiots back then, but at what point did you think that, you know what, this, this could happen? Uh... You know what, for me, it wasn't for a, a lot of years later. My, my first few years out of college, uh, I was struggling. I was working for a small radio station in Poughkeepsie, and I was mostly doing news with a little bit of play-by-play and a little bit of sports, but I wasn't going anywhere, and I was sending out resumes, and and I um, and I wasn't – not only was I not getting the jobs, I was sending the resumes out. I wasn't even getting reply letters that they, that they got my resume or tape, and I got really discouraged – and, you know, when I, sometimes when I go back and I talk to kids at college, I, I, I tell them the story to, to tell them to hang in there. And I was really close to quitting. And, in fact, I, I even called my father, who was a steam fitter, and I asked him for the application to get into the steam fitters union because I was tired of, of working at Poughkeepsie for no money and not doing the stuff I really wanted to do. And uh, thankfully, my dad told me, you know, stick with it. You said you wanted to do it five years. Give it a five-year plan after college, and if it doesn't work out, and it had only been like two and a half years after that. So I decided to stick with it a little longer. And fortunately, in the next couple of months, I got uh, probably my biggest break. And that was to get me down to NBC radio as a producer, not even on air. But it it, um, it got me down to into the city where I started meeting a lot of people and making contacts. And for that, I can thank a, a Fordham buddy, a uh, fellow by the name of Chris Doyle, who I went to college with, and he was working down there, and he hired me. And I know we want to talk a little bit about modern day basketball, but uh, and and some of the games that the iconic games that you've called. But something I've always appreciated about appreciated about you, Mike, is on the air that an ego doesn't come across. And and we talked about all of the the different partners that you've worked with, and and oftentimes been. And as you know, when you work with different partners, you do have to set an ego aside because it's about you're making the, the broadcast the best it can be, and oftentimes that means making an analyst a star. Where and, and you just mentioned your dad, so maybe it's from him. Where, where does that mentality come from? 
Uh, well, from a broadcast standpoint, I mean, without sounding corny and cliches, guys, I mean, everything is from, from my mother and father. They just um, they just were the most unselfish people I, I've ever met in my life. They just all they you know, spent their lives worrying about other people and doing things for other people. And um, and always, you know, they brought me up to just, just to treat people with with kindness and respect, and that's that was the mantra. So I, I credit them for pretty much everything. But from a broadcasting standpoint, um, I, I listen to some of the great ones. Uh, you know, Marv Albert is is the greatest play-by-play voice of all time, and um, he has been and always will be the standard. And I think. When you're a kid growing up listening to Marv, not only were his calls obviously spectacular, but the way he weaved in his analyst, uh, where he would throw out some strategy stuff to have the analyst take it a step further, uh, where he would have fun and, and use humor and, and, and you know prod his analyst a little bit. So he was... Uh, he was one of the ones that really influenced me. And then as you get older, you know, you listen to different guys. I, I, I loved two of my all-time favorites were, were Dick Enberg and Vern Lundquist because they always made it seem like there was no other place they'd rather be with the person who happened to be sitting next to them. Mm-hmm. And that really had a big impact on me when I first started. You know, I could name I could name you know dozens of guys who had an impact, but those are those are the three that really had an impact. One of Noah mentioned some of the iconic games that you've called, and and one of the the games that's historical, and and we're coming up on the 15 year anniversary of it, is the Malice at the Palace, and and everything that happened that night between the Pistons and the Pacers. And I've talked to Kevin O'Neill about this, who was an assistant with the Pacers at the time, and he always says, you know, people think about it as almost like, you know, this this sort of funnier story because of some of the things that happened in some of the images from that night. But from a, a team perspective, the Pacers were devastated because it basically crushed their franchise for years. And and they thought they were going to win a championship that year. When when you went to bed that night, uh, what was your lasting image of, of of what you had seen over the course of that day? Well, I, I remember being, first off, um, you know, you, I don't think I fell asleep till about four or five in the morning uh, after the game. Bill Walton, who I did the game with Jim Gray, Eddie Fibershaw, the producer. We all we all went back, and you know, we were up forever just talking about it. I, I think I finally fell asleep about five o'clock. But the 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 number one thing I remember was how sad I was. I mean, I I love basketball. I love the game. I love the players. I love the league. And you knew that it was it was going to be such a black eye, and you knew that there were going to be major repercussions for individual players, um, for as you say, Adam, the the franchise. It took them, as you as you said, years to recover. Uh, so there was a sadness about it. Now there was an excitement level, not in a good way, but an excitement level from a professional standpoint, and that you know we just covered this major event, and we 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 were pretty proud of the way we covered it. You know, you never do it perfectly, but we thought we did a good job in terms of balancing and, and talking about what happened. So uh, those were the two things I think going to bed, like you, you felt proud of the people you were with. We had just, you know, such a great crew and everybody worked together for it. But at the same time, you were really sad for, for what it meant for the league. So let's fast forward to modern day basketball how many times do you think during this year's NBA Finals will you just say LeBron, even though he's not out there on the floor? 
<laughs> uh, no, I don't, I'm not. Uh, I'm sure he'll be mentioned early because it's <laughs> going to be weird not having him there. Right. Um, but you know, you really have to. It's all going to be about um, the two teams that do it because the two teams that get there this year, it's going to be quite an accomplishment. Uh, whether you know it's the East or the West, there's some other really good teams. It's not going to be an easy road uh, for either the East or the West champion, and you know you have to just focus on them. Although I'm sure during the course of of however many games is, and we always root for seven games, I think uh, there'll be graphics that'll show about you know great moments in Finals history or great numbers, and LeBron's name's going to be there, and you know we'll. Well, I'm sure show replays of of what he did in past finals. So he'll he'll be present in other ways, but it is going to be kind of different. The fact that uh, that he's not there. I mean, he's been out there for more than half the finals that you've called, and now you're going to be courtside, and you're not going to see LeBron. Yeah, well, the last eight plus the the one in '07. So right. so nine of the <laughs> nine of the thirteen so far. Um, yeah, I've always like, for example, uh, Marv always had the had the uh, to me the privilege and honor of of being the voice when when uh, Michael Jordan had you know the, the zenith of his career, and I feel the same way. I think it's an honor and a and a privilege to call games of you know these great players like Kobe Bryant. I've, I've done so many Kobe Bryant big games, and now LeBron's big games and. And Steph Curry's big game. So it's to be able to watch history because, you know, 30 years from now, people are going to be talking about, oh, I remember when that guy LeBron James played or remember when Steph Curry played or Kobe Bryant. That's pretty cool. I'm jealous of the people who can talk about when they saw Wilton and Bill Russell uh, and those matchups. So uh, I think the same thing will happen 30 years down the line. With all the the finals you've seen and certainly the Bulls teams and people have made the comparisons with today's Warriors, I'm so curious, has seeing this historical team, forget just a player perspective with, with Steph, but just as a team and then working alongside a guy that coached the Warriors be- before this run, what is it that you're seeing from your perspective that makes this team just so special and and unique? Just how unselfish they are. Uh, they really do. Uh, each, I mean, whether it's Durant, Curry, Thompson, Maybe not necessarily Draymond Green in the scoring department. Each of those guys could average 35 a game if they were on another team, um, but they don't. And there's such such willing passers. Three of the great scorers in the history of the game. They're such willing passers. Draymond Green is is content when he scores four points, as long as he's the captain of the defense and and makes the right passes and and does the the defensive stops. It's 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 an incredibly talented team. Uh, but you know the NBA is littered with talented teams who've never won anything, and it's because these guys played the game the way it's supposed to be played, and that's five guys. It's still a five-man game, and uh, all the talent in the world, individual talent, in most cases, um, you know, people think talent wins out. Not necessarily. It's still it's still a game that's played, and it's played most beautifully when it's five men working together, and that's to me what stands out about them, despite all the talent they still play it uh, as a team. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's stay with talent. From from your career, who's the guy that when you're broadcasting a game, the guy that makes you sit, that makes you inch up the furthest on your chair when he has the ball? You know what? There, there, no, there's really not one. There's, there's you know, it it was COVID. When Michael, when I first started, Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it just. So there's got to be right. So I in, remember in, in the different eras. Maybe I should have said. 
Yeah, Michael Jordan when I first started, but um, a guy like uh, some of my favorite players are, are I love John Stockton um, and how hard and how tough he was uh, every single night. Uh, I loved Steve Nash, how creative he was and how he would do anything for his team to get them to win. One of my true favorite players is Tim Duncan, a guy who you never knew what he was thinking, and all he cared about were his teammates and winning a game. He was the the, the most humble superstar ever, and he was one that never, ever demeaned a teammate or an opponent or disrespected an opponent, and he wanted to crush his opponent as much as any player has ever lived. But I always admired his demeanor and, and the way he, he – um, you know, he never again disrespected anybody on the court. Uh, and then, you know, in in recent years, I mean, Dwayne Wade was, was one of those special players. Uh, that first finals, the show he put on, uh, Dirk Nowitzki, what he was able to do. And, you know, now there's there's so many good guys. Steph Curry is, is as enjoyable to watch. Kevin Durant is, is he's like a, a scoring machine. And LeBron, I know I'll probably leave out too many guys that I should mention, but those those are just some of them over the years. You know, you know, there's a guy that I, I, I love, you want to say, on the edge of my seat watching, Manu Ginobili. <laughs> Manu Ginobili mm. played every single game like it was game seven of the NBA Finals. Mm-hmm. Every single game. And those are the players I like. The guys that, you know, every second they're out there, a Kevin Garnett or a Ginobili, those are the players that, that uh, always were the ones that had me at the edge of my seat. All right, so we, we always end the, the Catch and Shoot podcast with a the Catch and Shoot question of usually when it's you know, a player or an analyst, it's who do you want taking that final shot? So I could ask you that. So I'm going I'm to give you a choice. Since I know you're not going to answer who do you want to be calling a game seven with, I know you're not, I know you're not going to answer that. So you, you could go with, that's, that's correct. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you could go with who would you be most confident in taking that final shot? Um, or who would you want interviewing the guy who just took that final shot? So taking away from the, from the broadcast table, but maybe there's a, a reporter out there. Well, you know what? Quite honestly, right now, I want to I want to do every big game with Mark and Jeff. And if there's one reporter out there to ask a question, and she's with us on our finals broadcast every year, is Doris Burke. Mm-hmm. I'm working with three of the best in the business, so you know they're the ones that I would love uh, to to work with, and hope I can work with them for for many years to come. Um, as for the player taking the final shot of all the players that I broadcast, it, it, it'd be pretty impossible to pick against Jordan. Um, you know, he just, he thrived in those moments. He wanted those moments. And even though there were some times in those moments he failed, most of the times he didn't. He just, he had a tenacity about him that was incredible to watch. Uh, you know, you'd be doing a game in, in February and the Bulls, you know, they have a seven game lead in their division and they, you know, they're going to go far in the playoffs and they're up by 20 and he's defending a guy like, like it's the last possession of the season. He mm-hmm. has this, this tenacity that very few have had that that type of, you know, just killer instinct of wanting to crush their opponent. And here I was thinking you were going to say Alonzo Trier, and you went with Michael Jordan. <laughs> well, I tell you what, he, there's uh, Alonzo Trier is not afraid of the big moment, and he would be the first guy to, to, to volunteer to take the big <laughs> shot. That's the one thing I love about that Nick rookie. 
Mike, we really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for all the time. Oh, uh, no, Anana, it was, it was a pleasure. I hope it wasn't too boring. It gets too personal. I think it's uh, it can be a little boring, but I really no, had a lot of fun. No, no, no. It's quite the opposite. Not. Certainly not. Quite Thank the opposite. This was, this, was, this was awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome, guys. I think we're about to go off the rails. It's kind of odd to go off the rails, as we usually do at the end of a podcast here on Catch and Shoot, because Mike Breen is never off the rails. He's always... He always just has it together. But today, I was in Trader Joe's, and, and Adam, I just don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, you're just laughing and thinking about me in Trader Joe's. I yep. just don't understand why. Okay, so there's two. There are two lines as you approach the checkout. Okay. And two lines form into one. So it's then one person from the left line, then one person from the right line, and you just alternate who goes. And I just don't understand how people don't get it like they're constantly like they're looking back as if they are merging onto a highway <laughs> when the person is just right next to them like we all know the deal here okay this person on the left you're gonna go then a person on. there's no reason to like look back give the person the nonverbal. hey you know i'm gonna step in here right there's no there's no reason for it so that's my that's my deal for trader joe's today and also also about just people in New York. So people in New York are so trusting of each other that when one person steps out from the off the curb to walk across the street, whether that hand is red or the green walking man is up, all it takes is one person to step off the sidewalk and into the crosswalk, and then everybody goes. <laughs> Next time you're in New York, I don't know how it works out west. I don't know how yep. it works. Yep. I mean, you're on your on your bikes or, you know, driving cars with the, the sunroof down. All it sure. takes is one person take a step out into the crosswalk, and then all of a sudden everybody go. There could be there could be three cars speeding across the street. Oh, one person went. Yeah, I'll go. It's safe. I. That's incredible. The, the trust it. factor. I had never I had never thought about that being like a, a New York thing. Um, Oh, and then but, I and then I passed a, I passed a, a store today. I did it yesterday, and then I also passed it today. And you got to let me know whether or not you would have done the same thing. Okay. The, outside this store, it's called Pookie and Sebastian. It's just uh, women's uh, clothing boutique, and uh, it says like there's a blackboard outside, and it says "I need new clothes" in quotes, and it just says "us" literally every morning, and literally is spelled wrong. It's a, he spelled it with two T's, L-I-T-T-E-R-A-L-L-Y. So today I thought, you know what, should I go in and tell him? Oh, okay, yeah. Like yesterday I posted on social media. So today I was like, yeah, maybe So you embarrassed them yesterday and then right, you but they don't have a, they don't have a Twitter handle or anything in it and it got no pickup. Why would Pookie? Why would Pookie? Yeah, yeah I don't. it got no pickup. Uh, I think they're big on Pinterest. And so what did they say? Uh, I didn't go in. So if I see it tomorrow, I'm going to go in. But then, so you tell me, how would you approach it? What would your first line be to them when you walked in? All right, and you can't, you can't just, like, lick your finger and erase a T that way? That's not a possibility for you? Oh, Ed, oh yeah, I shouldn't bring an eraser with me. <laughs> oh, that's – no, no, no. I don't, I don't want to okay. do that to them. Yeah, because then it will also look, like, lit early. Right. 
Um, uh, I, that's a great question about how I'd approach them. I, I mean, listen, it's kind of interesting, though, after anyone that listened to the podcast last week um, and, and your ability to be blunt, you know, you told Monica McNutt that she, she couldn't count to four. Wait, so, so it's so what shocking do I do? Do I to me that you're not willing to be that blunt to tell someone they don't know how to spell literally. Well, I don't want to tell them. I, I thought about going in and saying, you literally should be going to school before you pick <laughs> out new clothes. But I, maybe I do I go in and just say, look, I don't want to be a weirdo, but literally is spelled wrong. <laughs> I, Noah, I don't, I don't know how I would handle this. I don't know that I would tell them. But then I, I don't, don't want, I don't want like the manager to be in there and maybe it was an employee and then that employee get in trouble. You know, I don't want to say something to the wrong person. Oh, I see where you're at. Okay. And there's no way, maybe you could bring some chalk and you cross out the T or something tomorrow, yeah. which sends a message also. Maybe and I do you think bring them some chocolate from Trader Joe's and say, <laughs> hey, you know, I know you've had a tough day. I, I, so, I just okay. got to ask a question about the Trader Joe's thing. So, so in New York... You already have these people that are just following the group, and it's this massive group think when it comes to the crosswalk, right? Mm -hmm. But then you've also got people at Trader Joe's that are indecisive. Like, you would think that it would carry over into the Trader Joe's line, no? No, no, it's, no? It's, no, no, it's actually, it, it actually goes hand in hand that the, per, that the people just follow the person in front of them. But really, you need to be going, you need to be alternating. So it is kind of like stepping off into the crosswalk because you're just following the person in front of you. Mm, a whole bunch of followers in New York. Who knew? I'll tell you about the rudeness in the Bay Area the next time we, we have a podcast. But, Noah, I think it's time now to, to thank everyone who is involved in this podcast. You know that we're contractually obligated to do this. Um, Jeff Torini. Can't forget him for for editing. Scott Turkin and Bruce Bernstein, our, our producers. Um, everyone from the Pure Hoops Media team. Did, does that cover it? I don't. I don't have the contract in front of me. I don't no, have the full list. Well, you got to get you got to get Scott in there, and then we also need to promote all the other podcasts as well. So it's the Mike Wise Show that comes out on Mondays. That awesome is, show. Yeah, awesome that's, show. That is something. Every time I listen to it, it's I, something. I'm. I'm Wondering is is Mike offending the guest, or is is the guest really into it? And that keeps me listening because he's not afraid to ask anything. So Mike Wise show on Mondays, and then we've got the Pure Hoop show with Eric Newman and B.J. Armstrong on Fridays, awesome and show. we're gonna have awesome show, buckets, boards, and blocks with the aforementioned mathematician Monica McNutt. That comes awesome out show, on April. 11th. Awesome show. Yeah, they're all awesome, awesome show. It's not even out yet. I mean, it's going to be great, but it's not even out yet. Well, I'm just telling people, all of our shows are awesome. So, do, uh, uh, Did you get a sneak peek into the show because you have a Pure Hoops Media email address? I have uh, access that you don't have. I'm sorry. Awesome. Good for you. Noah, I appreciate you, brother. Every week, you're the best. You too, pal. The Catch and Shoot Podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 